0: This is Quarantine Conversations, brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth, and our host, hello, I'm Daniel Gowerlock. is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Rachel
1: White. rachel and welcome to the quarantine conversations uh, now in this podcast series we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific career uh, so would you consider yourself to be a student a teacher a hobbyist a researcher uh, where are you on that spectrum
0: hi danielle thanks for having me so i am a new assistant professor here in the earth ocean and atmospheric sciences department so i'm sort of pretty fresh out of my postdoc and definitely doing both research and teaching.
1: Wonderful. And you're an atmospheric scientist, right? Yes. Fabulous. Uh, What does being an atmospheric scientist mean to you or or what kind of atmospheric scientist are you?
0: Right. So within the big realm of atmospheric scientists, there are lots of different specialities. Um, And so for me in particular, I Study atmospheric dynamics, so particularly large-scale circulation of the atmosphere, what the general circulation of the atmosphere does, kind of how how it interacts with the surface, how it, how the atmosphere interacts with mountains and the ocean, and more recently, um, looking at how that sort of large-scale dynamics interacts with particular weather events, and so particularly extreme weather events.
1: When you say large scale, like what's large scale to you? <laughs> Oh,
0: yeah. Excellent question. Um, And so I study what are called rosby waves. So this is a particular type of wave in the atmospheric circulation. And so you can see it in the the winds. You can also see it in pressure fields in the atmosphere. It it varies. Some some rosby waves are what we call, um, we talk about waves in terms of wave number. And so this is the number of full waves, so sort of a, a peak and a trough that fit around an entire latitude line around the Earth. Um, and so with Rossby waves, we're talking about wave numbers between sort of two and maybe seven or eight. And so the the smallest scale is something that you can only fit seven or eight of them around the whole globe. So thousands of kilometers.
1: That is quite large scale.
0: It's quite large scale. Yeah.
1: <laughs> And how did you get into the atmospheric sciences? I mean, when, when I was a kid, I never even heard of an atmospheric scientist.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. And there's a bit of a cheesy answer that I don't, I don't know whether it's, it's become cheesier kind of as time has passed. I don't know how much it's reality and how much it makes a good story. But I, and I talked to someone else who had the same answer the other day. And it was that I remember watching the movie Twister when I was young Um, and the thing that I really remember about it like obviously very cool where they go chasing after a tornado and they're scientists and they've got this like things that they've made that they're trying to sort of release into the tornado so they can study it and see how it forms and how the wind um moves around in the tornado and the thing that really I don't know, spoke to me was that it they, It just made it so clear that there were so many things they didn't understand, things they, that we don't know about the world, about even things that are so disruptive as tornadoes. There's still science that's really unclear. And so, yeah, I, I don't know whether that was really what got me into it. But it's certainly a memory that sticks with me um, as something that made me think, oh, like, wouldn't it be cool to find out new things about the world that like nobody else knows because like science doesn't know it yet and so that's what research is to me is finding out things that nobody knew before which is exciting
1: I don't think that's cheesy I mean I've heard from so many paleontologists that they got into paleontology because of Jurassic Park or um awesome (laughs) by the way uh the machine that they use in Twister would that actually work in real life are you designing one of those (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay, so I don't actually work on tornadoes. Um, that's mu- that's that's way too small scale for me, unfortunately. I think sort of along the way I got more interested in climate change and anthropogenic climate change. And whereas not all of my research, maybe we'll get onto this later, some of my research is very idealized and not really set in the real world. But kind of in the back of my head, I sort of have this vague goal of trying to understand the atmospheric circulation better so that we can understand how it is likely to change into the future as the planet continues to warm and hopefully be able to mitigate and reduce some of those impacts. So tornadoes are very impactful too, but that's not the direction I went in the end. So I I cannot speak to how realistic. Uh, I mean, it looked, it looked cool at the time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i'm sure it still looks great today i i haven't seen it in, in a while
0: <laughs> they do i have i have seen in various talks though i have seen pictures from people not not with tornadoes but with hurricanes who fly planes into a hurricane um and essentially there's sort of there's videos of them looking for sort of a gap in the eye wall, and then they just go straight through into the eye of the hurricane and then you can just see the whole thing and i i'm at those moments, I'm always somewhere between. That would be amazing. And I would be terrified. I would never want to do that in my life.
1: <laughs> As you're explaining that, I'm questioning all my life choices that led me away from flying a plane into a hurricane because <laughs> I kind of want to do that right now.
0: Right, <laughs> And at the same time,
1: really not. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share?
0: Ooh, so there's a... I think it's fun. Um, it probably depends on your perspective, how uh, fun you really think it is. Um, and so I said that some of my research was slightly more idealized. And so I've done a number of studies. So in general, I play with climate models. Um, and so I use climate models. And so the, sort of most people know about climate models from the climate change perspective, that they're one of the tools that we use to understand Well, if we put this much greenhouse gases into the atmosphere over the next 40 years, what will the climate look like in 50 years time, in 80 years time? But essentially, these are just models of the atmosphere in the ocean. And so you can play with them. And so instead of doing things like adding greenhouse gases, you can do other things. Um, And so I do things like take out mountain ranges. Um and so just come in with essentially a giant bulldozer and just remove the North American Rockies. Um, and then essentially to see well, what would what would the atmospheric circulation look like if these mountains weren't there? And so whereas it does, it sounds fairly idealized, there's there's a lot of kind of really important understanding we can gain from that, that also has applications for sort of paleoclimates. And if we're studying Earth's history, a the the mountains, the land ocean configuration, it's all been very different a long time ago. Um, And so if we're trying to understand what the climate was like back then, it's also useful to understand how the mountains were affecting them. And so one of the experiments or one of the pieces of research that I did was to look at the effect of Asian orography in particular. So looking at the Himalayas and the Tibetan plateau on downstream circulation over the Pacific, looking at the, the jets in the Pacific and how that sort of influences North America. And so there have been a lot of studies in the past sort of on similar things. Um, where people have taken out this topography and said, oh, the effects of the Himalaya and the Tibetan Plateau. Because obviously it's it's those. Those are sort of the, the biggest, that's where Everest is, those are the biggest mountain ranges on Earth. And so I, I guess I was a bit pedantic when I designed these experiments because I said to myself, well, people are saying it's, you know, the Tibetan Plateau. So I will remove the Tibetan Plateau and kind of just the Tibetan plateau. And I ran these experiments and I saw that it didn't really have that much effect if you took out the Tibetan Plateau and the Himalayas. I mean, there was was a response, but not the big response that everybody was saying. Oh, is this? This is the effect of the Tibetan Plateau. And so then I did a bit more research on sort of other other mountains and essentially discovered that it's the Mongolian Mountains. So they're just to the north of the Tibetan Plateau and they are smaller. Um, But those are the ones that are actually causing most of the effect that people normally attribute to the Himalaya and the Tibetan plateau. Hmm. So, yeah, so that was pretty cool. And then sort of we dug a bit into sort of why that is and understanding sort of a bit more about how these mountains affect the circulation. So that was pretty cool.
1: So are you saying that um, ancient climate may have been different, not just because of uh, different atmosphere composition, different uh, gases in the atmosphere, but also because of the shape of the land?
0: Definitely. Yeah. And so we we got some other um, (laughs) coming out, all of the bizarre ways that I play with climate models. Um, I worked with a graduate student at the University of Washington when I was a postdoc there. And we did some simulations of the Eocene. And again, idealized sort of trying to see what the climate of South America and the Amazon was like. and, And again, understanding these separate influences. And so what we did was we shrunk the Atlantic Ocean. And so we essentially in this model sort of drew a line down the mid-ocean ridge and then just sort of pushed um, the Americas and Europe and Africa back together again and stretched out the Pacific and sort of saw how that affects precipitation and rainfall over the Amazon rainforest and over South America because now the parcels of air that are sort of coming into South America have less ocean to go over before they get there. So yeah, like the land, the ocean, how it sort of fits together and where the mountains are, and all of these things can have quite a big effect on uh, on our climate.
1: And what did you notice when you shrunk the Atlantic?
0: Oh, so the main the main thing was that right, you if you shrink the Atlantic, you reduce precipitation over the Amazon rainforest. And so it was sort of quite interesting. So the experiments um, this graduate graduate student ran these experiments and she found that she also looked at co2 levels because those were very different in the Eocene. and so she was sort of comparing what are the effects of co2 what are the effects of the shrinking of the atlantic and found that generally those were slight they were they were opposite responses and so whereas the the added co2 the added temperature increased temperature increased precipitation shrinking the Atlantic, decrease the precipitation. And so that sort of helps us to think about these past climates and realize, well, it's not quite as simple as, oh, it was warmer then, so there was probably more rainfall and more evaporation and more water recycling. There are lots of other things that can affect that.
1: You you atmospheric scientists and climate scientists always amaze me because it's like you're trying to, the, the, the atmosphere is almost like a really intricate clock and like it's with climate change, too, the clock is also changing and you're trying to dissect the different pieces and the gears and the cogs um, and try and find out what they all do, while at the same time, again, it's in flux.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a really nice analogy. I've never thought of that. But yeah, there are so many pieces and so many bits of the Earth system interacting that, right, it's a, it's a complex problem, but that's what makes it fun.
1: Is this what you're working on right now? Or are you doing something different?
0: So I'm I'm there's a there's a small part of my research that's still removing mountains from climate models um, and even actually then rotating the Earth backwards just to see what the climate would look like if the Earth rotated in the opposite direction. But what I'm mostly focused on is looking at these Rossby waves that I mentioned earlier and how they're related to extreme events and so in particular extreme temperature events so heat waves and so we found that there does seem to be, well, there is a relationship between these types of rosby waves, particularly ones that slow down and become almost stationary for a long period of time. And so there, are, there there's loads of rosby waves in the atmosphere. Um, some of them are stationary because they're forced by mountains and other ones we call them transient because they're actually just sort of, they're, they're coming through. And that's when we sort of get low pressure systems coming through and they just pass by and they're gone in sort of a day or two. But there are sometimes these Rossby waves behave differently and they become stationary for a short period of time, so maybe a week or two weeks. Um, and that's when they can really have an impact on extreme temperatures and extreme weather. Mm. And so my research is sort of really trying to understand the dynamics of what's going on when these waves become stationary like this um, and what causes that. And can we predict that? And so I've got into Subseasonal and seasonal predictability recently. And so sort of the idea is that if there is some large-scale control of these raspberry waves that's making it more likely that they will become stationary in this way, then maybe that's something that we can predict ahead of time on a scale of sort of months to seasons. And so it's not sort of a, ooh, at the beginning of May, we'll be able to say, ah, yes, there's going to be a heat wave in Vancouver on August the 12th. But more kind of, OK, maybe we we know what the what sea surface temperatures are doing everywhere. Um, and we know that they change quite slowly usually. And so if we, if, we, if we do have those clear links between what causes these waves to become stationary and some large scale controls, what we might be able to say at the beginning of May is actually there's a higher risk this summer of heat waves occurring in Vancouver and try and sort of quantify that. Um, and so that's, that's the problem that's really driving
1: me at the moment. That's really cool. I was actually going to ask you, um, what, what's the practical use of your research, but uh, that <laughs> is a really big impact.
0: <laughs> yes. And so that that's part of this shift. Like I really love atmospheric dynamics and I love kind of the, the physics behind it, but I did want to sort of shift away from this very idealized taking mountains out which does contribute to our understanding and is important to do that kind of basic fundamental research but shifting slightly towards or at least adding um, an aspect of research that doesn't require sort of you know three slides or something of motivation at the beginning of a seminar or a talk when you say I'm trying to predict heat waves nobody says oh why would you want to do that Um,
1: (laughs) yeah so
0: yeah it's nice to feel that hopefully that my work could have a more direct impact
1: absolutely and especially um here in canada i know we've had a few winters where the polar vortex has stalled over some major cities we had the opposite of a heat wave like an ice wave
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i think we usually we usually call them cold snaps but i don't know why I don't know why it's a snap when it's cold and a wave when it's hot. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. And so there's sort of the similar atmospheric dynamics. And I've been focusing on summer, but definitely looking at winter and those types of cold snaps, ice waves is something I'm interested in and really understanding what's going on and particularly understanding how that's going to change in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's there's two kind of interesting parts of how extreme temperature events will change in the future. And one is that temperatures are going to increase. And so heat waves will become more frequent and more intense, and cold snaps will become less frequent and less intense. And that, you know, there, there are some there are some interesting details that we still need to understand there, but that's sort of fairly well understood. But the other side is the dynamical side of how will the atmospheric circulation respond to warming. And so because, because different parts of the earth are warming up at different speeds in particular the arctic is warming up much faster than the equator land is warming much faster than oceans all of this can sort of affect the atmospheric circulation and so still there's there's a lot of research that needs to be done and there's sort of a lot of debates in the scientific community about how will the circulation change with anthropogenic warming and so i think that's kind of understanding the the connections between these large scale circulation and heat waves and cold snaps will help part of that puzzle piece that I think is really interesting.
1: Interesting. Fascinating. Do you do any field work or is it all like modeling on the computer?
0: It is all modeling on the computer. Occasionally I do wonder, similarly to you with the hurricanes, I'm thinking, when you hear stories of people who you know go out to Antarctica, I, I've long been trying to work out why a climate modeller has to go to Antarctica on a field trip. Um, I haven't quite worked out a good reason for that yet, but I'm I'm working on it. So right, but all of all of my research is done um, sitting behind the desk of a computer. Okay, I just, so you can see the background behind me at the moment. There's it's a picture of mountains in Mongolia, in fact. Um, And so this was the closest I got to field work, which was really I just went on holiday because I wanted to go horse riding across in the Mongolian mountains. But having done this body of research on the importance of the Mongolian mountains, I felt the need to go around and get some photos of myself pretending to dig up the Mongolian mountains <laughs> as my um, real world experiment of all of my idealised climate model experiments where I'd removed the Mongolian mountains to study the impact. That's the closest I've got <laughs> to fieldwork.
1: Okay, so um. Rachel, we all have things with our jobs that we love and things that we don't enjoy quite as much. Um, what's your favourite part of your work? Ooh, that is a good question. There are, there are
0: I think there are lots of favourite parts. That's the thing. There's, right, I love interacting with students um, and mentoring and sort of helping helping students grow and sort of figure out how to, research independently and that's one thing that I'm really excited about uh, with this position Um, being an assistant professor in this department now being able to do that more uh, I love doing the research itself like I I enjoy the satisfaction of kind of climate models as, as we were saying there's so many interacting parts climate models are pretty complex or at least the full ones are there's a hierarchy of different models And so it takes some work to kind of persuade a climate model to do what you want it to do Mm -hmm. um, and sort of work out how to make sure that it it starts off numerically stable when you've done something stupid to it, like, oh, remove all the mountains and then rotate it in the opposite direction. Obviously, kind of, if, if you did that to the earth... (laughs) it it, there'd be a bit of a shock to start with and so obviously models have the same thing when you start it going it thinks it's rotating the right way with all these mountains and suddenly and instantaneously you say actually no you're not go the other way um and I've taken out all your mountains and so right there's there's some kind of almost logistics I guess of of how you how you get it to do that and so I sort of enjoy the satisfaction of coming up with these sometimes bizarre sometimes more normal experiments and running them on the climate models and I also I also really enjoy the teaching aspect of um, this job so I, I started teaching when I was a postdoc at the University of Washington not because I had to I had a fellowship so I didn't um, have to teach in order to get the money but I sort of thought well hang on, if I'm if I'm wanting to be an assistant professor, I should really find out if I enjoy teaching, because that's quite a big part of that job. And so there was an opportunity to teach an introductory course on climate science. Um, And so I did that. And I I really enjoyed it. I loved interacting with the students. I loved thinking about ways to engage them in the material and get them actively um, learning in the classroom. And right, and and particularly with something like climate science, there's a lot of interest from students these days um, and a lot of desire for more knowledge. And so I find that really inspiring. And I really, yeah, I really enjoy kind of thinking about how to how to teach better and how to be a better better teacher. And yeah, so, right, I love a lot of it, is the answer, it seems.
1: I love that approach. Um, the idea that you want to be an assistant professor and... Uh, you said, well, wait, I should figure out if this is actually something I'll enjoy. Um, maybe I should teach a class. Exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. And I mean, it's a little different. So I did my PhD in the UK um, where they are quite different. And so I didn't I didn't have the opportunity for like being a TA in any classes. I think I had to sort of I guess I was a TA in some physics labs, but it was very sort of far removed from my field of study. Um, And so that didn't sort of really, it didn't feel like experience teaching. Um, Yeah, that was the first time where I really got to be in front of a classroom and influencing what the students learn. And I found it really interesting.
1: Yeah. Great. Now, is there anything in the field that has caused you to unfairly struggle in in, um, atmospheric sciences?
0: Right. I think I have been pretty lucky or very lucky with the people that I've ended up working with um, and the mentors that I've had but I mean it is it is very obvious particularly since I'm working in sort of atmospheric dynamics which is sort of a quite mathematical physical side of the field the gender balance at conferences of things like that is is very much not 50 50 and there are parts of that but I do I do recognize I'm not I'm not someone who enjoys putting their hand up at the end of a talk and asking a question in front of 200 people. That's just not that's just not me. And for a little while, I I sort of really sort of like really pushed myself to try and do it. And I did do it more. And I think I sort of hoped that the more I did it, I would become used to it. And That just didn't really happen. I was still just as uncomfortable every time. And I much prefer to go up to a speaker afterwards and have a conversation with them, um, or even email them afterwards. But I also know that there's a certain expectation on people to be active in a particular way in, a, in the community that is not how I fit in necessarily. And so I, I think I sort of just made a decision at some point that I was I was going to be me. In the way I wanted to be me and not try and change myself in order to fit in with sort of the expectations and try to sort of work to potentially change the expectations in the future and make a broader range of ways that you can be successful in this field it's not just this one pathway there's a lot of different ways so right I think I've definitely been very lucky I've heard stories it, right i not everybody has had the great mentors that i have had um which is is hard to hear um but i think particularly now there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do with equity and equality and um diversity and the importance of benefits for science of including all of these diverse groups of people in into science um and so i'm i'm hopeful for the future that we're we're changing things um, for the better.
1: And it's also a great reminder for everyone um, that even though a person isn't speaking up in, in a class um, or isn't you know asking questions a, a lot in conferences, doesn't mean that the, there isn't a lot going on upstairs. <laughs> like, you, you right. clearly are a leader in, in your field. Um, and yet, yeah, it's just public speaking isn't um, something you're comfortable with i admit i struggle with it at times too um i took the same approach where i just kept doing it again and again and again and i feel more comfortable than i used to but still in a large crowd where i don't know a lot of the attendees i'll most likely keep my mouth closed as well
0: (laughs) right and there's and there's so many other factors in that particularly to do with um how comfortable someone is speaking english Mm -hmm. i'm lucky that english is my first language but um, I spent a couple of years as a postdoc in Spain and sort of it really just talking to some of the scientists there it really sort of drove home the point of all well, these people are doing they're giving presentations, they're writing papers, they're attending conferences and asking questions in their second language or third or whatever it right. And the idea like, the idea of doing of giving a presentation in Spanish, like my Spanish is okay. It's not anywhere near good enough to Give a presentation that would just yeah I have so much respect for people
1: who are doing science in
0: a language that isn't their first language.
1: That's uh, something I never even considered Um, yeah that people who may not speak English as their their first language um, may just keep quiet because like you said they may not feel comfortable trying to explain these really complex processes with really high tech terms um which aren't terms that you learn in an english class <laughs> um right they just can't communicate their ideas and
0: right and it doesn't mean their ideas aren't aren't really great mm-hmm. and so right i think i think there needs to be a sort of recognition of trying to right trying to understand people rather than just assuming if they can't communicate their ideas immediately in fluent english then that the ideas aren't worth listening to or something like that is,
1: yeah. Well, I have to say you've been an excellent communicator of ideas today and I thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
0: Um, I, right, much easier um, one-to-one than in a giant hall of atmospheric dynamicists.
1: (laughs) Um, One thing that's forced us to all become better communicators or or more efficient communicators has been the the COVID-19 pandemic. Ah, yes. It's changed all of our lives. how has it impacted your work? Have you been able to work uh, during Covid nineteen or um, have it changed things? it's
0: It's been interesting, that's for sure. So I guess part part of my story is that uh, so I was supposed to move to Vancouver to start my position in July but because Canada closed their borders, my paperwork didn't come through until September, so I didn't actually move until September. And so, right, negotiating, Uh, An international move in the middle of a global pandemic with quarantines here, there and everywhere was certainly interesting. Um, I think I'm getting quite good at quarantining by this point. And but I still remember when this first happened. So back in, I guess, mid-March, early, early March, -March, mid-March. I was in Spain uh, where we had a very strict lockdown, I think, for about seven weeks. We were allowed to leave the house to get groceries and to go to the pharmacy. You weren't even allowed to leave the house to exercise, unless you had a dog, um, which I didn't. And so when it first happened, I thought to myself, this is amazing. I'm going to be so productive. I don't, I don't normally I work from coffee shops, I enjoy working from home, I enjoy working from different places. They I don't I don't have sort of this affinity with the office where I feel like I have to go into the office and that's the only place that I do work. Um, I sort of write my my work life balance is very intermingled and so I genuinely thought that this was I was just going to get so much work done because I didn't like a lot of my hobbies were things that I did outside of the house Um, I went to sort of aerial circus classes and dance classes and things and couldn't do that anymore so I was going to have all of this time and yeah that was optimistic to say the least um Yeah, it turns out my brain doesn't work very well when it's anxious about the state of the world in general. And so for at least, I think, three weeks, mostly more or less all I did was I learned to knit and to crochet. Um, (laughs) And I just sat in my apartment crocheting because I needed something to keep me busy and I could not focus enough to do any work. And I realized that I I was incredibly I think fortunate, I don't know. I wasn't teaching at the time, so I didn't have this immediate sudden, "Huh, how do I suddenly teach online? I've got to convert all of this course." And so, you know, I'm there's two sides to that. Yes, that was must have been incredibly stressful for everybody who went through and is still going through that. On the other hand, I might have benefited from a little bit more structure of here is this thing you actually have to do. So I didn't sit on my sofa crocheting unicorns all day. So it took me (laughs) a little while to get out of that. I'm happy to say I have managed to start doing work again, but certainly not to the level that I could before. I think all of this, and I mean, partly I've just moved to a new country and so I'm trying to settle down in a new country and figure out all of those things and a colleague of mine actually who also did the same thing described it as he said he felt like his brain had been microwaved and and that yeah that that feels about right and it's frustrating to not have the focus that I'm used to having but I'm really working on trying to be kind to myself to recognize that these are exceptional circumstances right we will get through this it will end <laughs>
1: So you're an expert at uh, picking apart the intricacies of the atmosphere using all the external factors and picking apart the intricacies of international bureaucracy during a pandemic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I have to admit, when you were talking about crocheting sweaters uh, or crocheting, I'm now imagining a sweater with Rossby waves going across the the chest and the bottom half.
0: (laughs) That would be amazing. You may have just killed productivity for all of December for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So um, that's all the questions I have for you for today. Uh, did you have any questions before I let you go? Uh, I don't think so, thanks. It's been really fun chatting with you, Daniel. Fabulous, well, thank you, Rachel. And I wish you all the best uh, as you get settled in. And I look forward to welcoming you uh, physically into the, the faculty when uh, we return.
0: I very much look forward to that too. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca, learn, quarantine conversations.